This is Dish and Dirt with Gary Pickren, South Carolina's only podcast dedicated to the real estate agent's craft. Hey everybody, welcome back to yet another episode of Dish and Dirt. I am your minimally talented host, Gary Pickren, and we appreciate you tuning in yet again. This week's episode is going to discuss earnest money issues, lots of issues to talk about there. Also, we'll have a segment on your continual education requirements, and Gary's good news only will finish out our show today. Now, I need a huge favor from you guys. I want you to become a minor celebrity, creating a minor stir. So if you watch Seinfeld, you know that reference. If not, it just went over your head. But what I need from you guys is if you will follow me on Instagram and YouTube, if you'll go to Instagram and type in Pickren Gary, that's P-I-C-K-R-E-N Gary, G-A-R-Y, and on YouTube, search for Blair Cato and subscribe to our page there, then it will get me on that status of trying to become a minor celebrity, creating a minor stir. Now, if you do like this podcast, we'd ask that you please like it and subscribe and tell other real estate agents about it mostly, because this little show, this crazy little show about dirt has 26 five-star ratings. This just tells you there's really no podcast out there for real estate agents on dirt. So let's jump into our show today. And the first thing we're going to do is talk about earnest money because earnest money has become a bigger issue. So the first thing we want to talk about when we talk about earnest money is how much earnest money should a buyer and a seller be asking for and receiving in a contract? And I think this is an area that a lot of real estate agents overlook because more earnest money from a buyer does typically denote more interest or ability to buy. Now, whether that's true or not, probably has no bearing on the truth at all. And people default all the time that put lots of earnest money down and and so forth. But it is one of the things that a seller looks for, and it is a feature. And when you are sitting here in a very tight market, putting down more earnest money might make your offer a little bit more attractive. But the problem we have with earnest money is that in most cases that I see, particularly in the Midlands, is earnest money is often very minimal. I'm talking $1,000, $1,500, sometimes even less. The reason that becomes problematic is when you are in a dispute and the contract DFTs, then you have to start looking at what are the recourses for the buyer or the seller when one of the parties is in default. And as a real estate lawyer who represents real estate agencies all over South Carolina and have represented more than 50 agents before the South Carolina Real Estate Commission, I will tell you there's always legalities and realities. And this is one of those things that when we talk about legalities and realities, realities typically win. And the reality that I think most people need to understand is that when one of the parties is in default and the other party wants to take legal action against them for that default, their recourse is often very limited and most often extremely painful. And what I mean by extremely painful is it costs a lot of money to chase a very little amount of money. The attorney fees are outrageous, the court costs are expensive, and it takes months, if not years, to get anywhere toward getting a judgment, which then oftentimes winds up to be uncollectible. So the legality oftentimes is that your client may be legally right, but the reality of it is they haven't suffered any damages or not enough damages for the expense of hiring an attorney, filing a lawsuit, and having this consume them for the next year or two. And so that's where your realities is going to win out. So under our contract, whether we're talking the Central Carolina Realtors Association contract in the Midlands or the more widely used South Carolina Realtors Association contract, both of these have specific types of legal remedies available by law if one of the parties defaults. And basically what the remedies are in a nutshell in both contracts is that either party can take any, any action as allowed under the law. So those recourses would be being able to sue somebody for damages, 
and we can talk about damages later on, but also attorney fees and court costs when the contract allows, and our contracts both allow for that. Now, the problem with this is, as I mentioned earlier, these costs are very expensive. Outcome is uncertain, and the court cases often take very long time. There's also another recourse that a client can do, is that is sue for specific performance, and that is where they sue the other party and ask the court to force them to follow through with their requirements on the contract. Well, the reality of that is I've never seen a court force somebody to buy a property because typically with the property, they have to borrow money. And so I very rarely in a residential matter see a court require a buyer to go ahead and go through the transaction. Usually they just uh, award damages in those situations. Now, I have seen situations where a seller has defaulted on a contract and the seller has refused to go through with it and the court has made them go through it with specific performance. So those are legal remedies that are available. But outside of taking this long, expensive route, the reality of it is the only recourse most buyers have is return of earnest money, and the most recourse that most sellers have is retention of earnest money. So if a buyer defaults, typically the only recourse that is really a reality for that seller is to keep that earnest money. So if a buyer of a $400,000 house defaults, and they've only put down $1,000 of earnest money, how satisfied will your seller client be that they received $1,000 as a result of their default? The mortgage payment on that house is probably closer to $2,000. Yeah, the $1,000 simply is not going to cover even one month's of payment. So getting minimal down payments, earnest money in situations like that oftentimes leaves the seller in a position of not being compensated when the buyer defaults. The other problem you have with earnest money is as long as the uh, jurisdictional amounts remain at $7,500 for magistrate court, um, going over the $7,500 becomes problematic because if the money is greater than $7,500 and you're in a, an action, some type of dispute over that um, that requires a court filing, you have to go to the circuit court, which adds a lot more time and effort. You typically want to try to resolve these matters at the magistrate court level, which is I like to call the people's court. In a nutshell, you need to start being more cognizant of, of the earnest money. And on the buyer side, make stronger offers by putting a little bit more earnest money down so that that entices the seller to sell the property to you over the other, other offer. The other thing is a seller, you want to be a little bit more cognizant of how much money you're receiving, recognizing that if the buyer wrongfully defaults, that your only recourse may be getting the earnest money. And if that's the situation, uh, then you want to make sure that the earnest money is going to be enough to at least satisfy the seller at a minimum. Now, the other issue you have to also look at is some of the contracts, such as a CCRA contract, states that if the buyer or seller wrongfully refuses to release the earnest money, then the court can award treble damages. Now, what treble damages are, are take the amount of damages and times them by three. And they could also pay attorney fees. So that can actually be a little punitive there. So if one side is unreasonably refusing to do it, they could get hit with a pretty large judgment against them, which obviously the, the winning party would still have to try to collect. The second issue to talk about with earnest money is that most real estate brokerages or agencies don't hold earnest money anymore. And I'm going to explain a little bit later in our program why this came about. But there's now a huge risk on you as an agent representing a buyer that has never been there before. And what this risk is, is if you are not holding earnest money and it's being held by a closing attorney, then oftentimes you are submitting a contract with no earnest money and that earnest money is going to be delivered at some t later time frame. Back in the day when y'all held earnest money, you would get the earnest money check and you would get the contract signed at the exact same time so that when you presented the contract, you actually had the check in hand. 
Today, since the earnest money is being held mainly by closing attorneys, you're not getting the check or ever touching the check, and therefore you're not having earnest money in hand when making offers. In addition to that, most or Generation Z clients don't have checkbooks, and so you're not getting checks from them even if they were, if you were holding the money. The CCRA contract and the state contract address these a little bit different. In the CCRA contract under paragraph 4, you have three subsections, section A, B, and C. Subsection A says blank earnest money is to be paid by check, cash, or other. And then it says section B, additional earnest money, here and after referred to as earnest money to be delivered on or before blank. And then C is earnest money is to be held in trust by blank. So assuming that a real estate closing attorney like Blair Cato is holding the money, if you don't have the check in hand made payable to Blair Cato, our, our recommendation is to write zero under paragraph A and under paragraph B, write the earnest amount of money and then give yourself a couple of days, 48 hours or whatever to get that check delivered to Blair Cato. Because if you put $1,000 in section A and zero in section B, it is given the impression to the set listing agent and the seller that you are in possession of the earnest money, which may not be the case. The other problem you have here, though, is you have to follow up to make sure that money does, in fact, get deposited with the closing attorney. So if you accept a contract today from your buyer to present to your seller and no check is being presented to you for the closing attorney, they're going to take the check down there themselves or wire or whatever, and you put it on Section B, $1,000 earnest money will be delivered on or before two days from 48 hours from ratification. You better calendar that and then go back and check and make sure that the check was actually received by the closing attorney and have the closing attorney give you some type of verification. Now, because of privacy rules, most closing attorneys should not provide you a copy of the check. What they probably need to do is just provide you some type of receipt form saying, yes, we are in uh, receipt of that money. Now, some attorneys could take the check and maybe uh, black out the account numbers and things of that nature, but there is a privacy issue you have to be aware of. The state contract's a little bit different. The state contract under paragraph five says the total blank earnest money is paid as follows. And it says blank accompanies accompanies this offer and blank will be paid by 6 p.m. on blank. And earnest money is to be in the form of either a check, cash, or other to be credited to buyer at closing. And so what they allow you to do is fill in how much earnest money is with the contract offer and or how much money will be paid by six o'clock on a specific day that your client selects, which might be a better way of doing it. But however, it still leaves you that risk that if your client does not deliver the money to the closing attorney or whoever's holding earnest money, then you might have some legal issues because when you present this, you are presenting this as fact that the money will be presented. So you need to 100% make sure you're following up on that day. What I have seen is agents who use that form, either the CCRA or the state form, and they put the money will be delivered within 48 hours or, or some other number, and then they never follow up with it. And then three, four, five weeks later, the buyer defaults, the seller wants to earn his money, and there is no money to pay him because the money's never been received. So it is incumbent upon you to follow up with the attorney to make sure that the money's been received. Another issue you have with this is that the statute 40-57 is silent on a pretty big issue, such as if the check is made payable to the closing attorney like Blair Cato and the check is handed to you, what is your obligations on getting that check to someone at Blair Cato and having it deposited. The statute's quite silent on that because under the statute, it assumes that your broker is holding the check 
an earnest money. And so you would have time frames in which you must get that check to your broker for it to be deposited in your brokerage's escrow account. But if your broker is not holding their money, there's no obligation to give a check made payable to Blair Cato to them to deposit in their check because they can't deposit it in their checking account. They have to deposit it. They'd have, I mean, they just have to afford it to us. So that's a problem. What I would recommend is that if somebody hands you cash, I would never take earnest money cash. And if they hand you personal checks or money orders, uh, what I would do is give those to your broker. If you can't get them to the law firm in the same day, give them to your broker to hold in some type of safe so that money's safe. You don't want to leave that money sitting in your car or at your house or in your, in your wallet because if something happens, that money, that could become your responsibility. Blair Cato has tried to figure out a way to resolve this issue for you. And what we did is we found an app called Zocam, Z-O-C-C-A-M. And what Zocam does for Blair Cato is it allows you as the real estate agent to take pictures of the front and the back of the check and it automatically deposits it into our trust account. So it's an app you can download on the Apple Play Store or on Android. Just type in Z-O-C-C-A-M. You download it. It takes like 20 seconds to answer the questions. It asks you for your name, your brokerage company. I think it asks for your license number. I don't really don't care about your real estate license number in it. And then that gets you set up. You have to set a PIN number. Then when a client hands you a check, you can sign in. And then it asks you to enter in your buyer's information, you know, their name and property address they're buying. And then you take a front picture of the front and the back of the check and hit submit. It submits it to us and gives you a notice saying, hey, it's been submitted. What a lot of clients are doing is while they're getting the contract signed, they'll go ahead and get that check and then get it deposited immediately so that they have complied with their requirements under the contract. This next issue is very important because it really pertains to why we are where we are today in relation to earnest money. I had the pleasure of trying this case before the Real Estate Commission a little over five or six years ago. And as a result of their order at the Real Estate Commission, it has changed how earnest money is handled throughout the state of South Carolina. And at the time of this hearing, I told them that it was going to be a fiasco if they ruled in the manner in which I felt they were going to rule. And unfortunately, they did. And now we have this fiasco of earnest money before us. Now, before I tell you about this case, let me tell you a little bit about the statute. In South Carolina, in order to release earnest money when a contract falls through DFTs, the state statute says this, if a dispute concerning the entitlement to and the disposition of trust funds arises between a buyer and a seller, and the dispute is not resolved by reasonable interpretation of the contract, by the parties to the contract, the dispute must be held in the trust account until the dispute is resolved by either A, a written agreement which directs the disposition of the money signed by all parties claiming an interest of the money, B, must be separate form of the contract, so you can't put that in the contract up front. Number two, filing of an interpleader. Number three, a court order. And number four, voluntary mediation. There are two triggering things here. Number one, a dispute has to arise first. So if earnest money is being held and there's no dispute, meaning that neither party is claiming a dispute and you just can't get in touch with one, and we have this happen all the time, where a buyer will sign uh, a contract not close, disappear, you can't find them, they may have moved to Idaho or wherever, and there's no dispute that the seller's entitled to the money, but the buyer's nowhere to be found, so we don't have a dispute, you still you can't release the earnest money under the new scenario. But So number one, you got to have a dispute. Number two, it says a dispute that's not resolved by reasonable interpretation of the contract. Now, I've been on the contract committee at the Central Carolina Realtors Association for about 13, 14 years now, I think 14 years. And one of the things we put in the contract was directions to the court when event A happened, then earnest money would be released to buyer or seller. 
So it was quite evident as to where earnest money was. So there would be no other interpretation other than what was intended. So the case before the court revolved around these facts. Buyer and seller into a contract. The contract allows a 10-day due diligence period for the buyer to do any inspections they want whatsoever. And within that 10-day period, they have the right to cancel the transaction for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And during that 10 days, if they cancel, then the contract is null and void, and they basically get their earnest money back. Quite clear. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We've been using that contract in Columbia, South Carolina since I think about 2006 or 2008 with that language in there. There's no dispute as to what it means. So in our situation, buyer, about three days into the transaction, went to the house, inspected it. There was some musty smell in the basement. The seller told them they weren't going to fix anything, don't even submit a repair list. So the buyer, under the contract, terminated the contract under the due diligence provision, which was their right. The broker released the earnest money because there's no other reasonable interpretation of the contract. The contract is super, super clear that if the buyer terminates the contract during due diligence, the money goes back to the buyer. There's no dispute. So after the money was released, the seller, who happened to be a lawyer, filed a grievance against the broker saying they couldn't have released the money without a signed written agreement, which is not true. The case should have been dismissed and never even taken up to the commission, but for some reason the commission wanted to hear it. And when I went before the commission, I think we had oral arguments for about an hour because of what the statute says. The dispute is not resolved by reasonable interpretation of the contract. And at that time, I told them that what could happen is a, any seller who agreed to release earnest money was a fool because they could use it to basically ex- extract revenge on the buyer. So, for instance, let's say that Walmart comes in to buy a piece of property and they have a due diligence period, which is common for commercial properties. And their due diligence period, say it's nine months. Well, during the nine-month period, they determined that the traffic flow patterns aren't going to work. There's not enough rooftops rooftops in the area to service the Walmart. So they decided to cancel the contract and receive a return of, let's say, $100,000 on its money. If you're the seller, all you need to do now is say, no, I don't, re- I don't agree. Because now what Walmart would have to do in that situation was either file a lawsuit against you to get their money back um, or try to figure out some type of settlement. So it allows the seller to basically extort money. Take that on a residential basis. It's the same thing. $400,000 house, $4,000 earnest money put down. Buyer rightfully terminates the contract. Seller says, I'm not signing the release. I want the money for no reason. They have no legal right to the money. And now they're extorting the buyer for the money. The problem with this is typically the money that buyers put down is all the money they have for down payment. So when this deal falls through and they go to buy another house, they don't have any more earnest money to put down. So the seller is really squeezing them for this earnest money, which is just wrong. So as a result of this ruling by the Real Estate Commission, I told them at the hearing that what would happen is real estate agents would no longer be holding earnest money. They'd be ditching that left and right. And as a result, that's exactly what's happened today. So based on this ruling, if you are a real estate agency holding earnest money, then you may not release that earnest money unless you have a signed release or a court order. There's no other way you're going to be able to release it except for maybe the mediation. Have the sign, but that's going to result in a signed release. So basically, it's a signed release or a court order. So without those, don't ever, ever, ever release earnest money. Because if you do, based on this case and this terrible ruling by the Real Estate Commission, you're going to get nailed as a real estate agent, which is why real estate agents aren't holding money anymore. Now that brings us to what happens when the closing attorney is holding the money. Well, under South Carolina law, we're not subject to 40-57. That law applies to real estate licensees. 
closing attorneys are not real estate licensees. They are real estate attorneys, first and foremost. Even if they have a real estate license, they're governed by their law license. So at that point, what happens? Well, under South Carolina rules of professional conduct, money that we're holding in escrow for parties may not be dispersed when that money is in dispute. Well, how do we know whether that money is in dispute or not? Well, we don't know it's in dispute unless somebody signs a release saying it's not in dispute. So essentially, under our court rules, all we can do is hold the earnest money until the parties sign a release. And that's it. And I have seen attorneys around town who sign agreements saying that they have the right to make the decision on who gets the earnest money and so forth. That can't be done. And I don't know why a lawyer would be writing that document. You can't contract around your rights and your rules of professional conduct. So under the rules of conduct, you can't get that done. Now, the last issue, issue four, is what happens if you're holding earnest money for a party before they even sign a contract and they never can enter into a contract somebody? Well, you can sign release that earnest money because there's no other party to release it. So if your client gives you $1,000 as earnest money up front while they're looking for a house, you can release that money without any signed release. The other issue that you can see, issue number five, is their client provides earnest money, contract terminates, and they want the earnest money back, but the closing attorney won't give it back to them. Why is that? Well, more than likely, it's because the earnest money has to clear the bank before the closing attorney can release it. So if you give me money, on the first day of the month, and on the second day of the month, you terminate the contract. We have to wait 10 business days to make sure that earnest money check has cleared our bank before we cut you a check back. That also means the same thing happens on a closing, that if you try to do a short closing and you give money on the first and you want to close on the fifth or the sixth, that earnest money has not cleared the bank, so the closing attorney should not do the closing because those are not good funds. So as you can see, there are quite a few issues that we've just kind of scratched the surface on. I think this kind of covers the main issues that you need to be aware of. And now to our segment on your education. The South Carolina Real Estate Commission a couple weeks ago, as I mentioned, have issued an order allowing for education to continue online by most education providers. And that's what we're doing here at Blair Cato. In fact, all of our education for 2021 will be done by Zoom. And what that order was interesting to state was they gave us that extension through June 30th, meaning that all of the education providers can continue to teach online through June 30th. I don't think that they believe that on June 30th that all of a sudden we can start teaching in person. I think what they believe by that is, or what I take from that is they're not extending your date past June 30th to get your license. Last year, I think we went into uh, September 30th. But this year, it's going to be June 30th. Now, don't forget that you're going to have to get your fingerprints done this year as well. And that's not an easy process. So there's a couple of things you need to do. Number one is you need to sign up for your education. And if you are a CCRA member, Blair Cato is teaching through CCRA. So you can go on our website at BlairCato.com and you can find where the most recent class is. Or you can go to CCRA's website and sign up there as well. If you are a member of CCRA, CCRA is giving you that class for free. If you are not a member of CCRA, you can also take that class. So if you're in Charleston, Hilton Head, uh, Greenville, Spartanburg, you can still take the classes. It's just $50 for the class. First thing you need to do is sign up and get the class taken. Second thing you need to do, you're going to need 10 hours. Four hours are your core class and then six hours elective. If you are a a realtor, rather, then you can take that uh, realtor ethics, code of ethics class through CCRA as well. That would be another four, leave you just two hours. In addition to that, get your fingerprints done, and I would go ahead and start working on that early because that will not be an an easy process. And then lastly, you need to be sure to go online after all of this is done and renew your license properly. That does mean signing on to to their website, entering in, in your information, paying your fee, 
submitting, making sure you have all your education done and submitting that. Now, I have seen a situation where that website sometimes hangs up and people will believe that they have submitted their application for renewal of license, but they've never submitted, hit the button properly or the button hung up. So make sure you're getting a confirmation email. If you do not renew by June 30th, you will now be practicing with a lapse license. And once you get to the 1st of 2022, if you're still practicing without having renewing your license properly, your license now is canceled and you would have to take over the entire classes all over again to get relicensed. And you certainly don't want to do that. And now our final segment today, Gary's Good News Only. A couple good things on COVID. The COVID numbers are going down like over 55% just last week or so. So that is certainly good news. Uh, There's an age-adjusted COVID-19 mortality rate that's done by states. And in this graph, it shows that deaths per 100,000 adjusted to standard population, South Carolina ranks 26, just right there at the national average at 138 people per 100,000 people. Now, in this same uh, graph, it shows that New York City, if it was a state, uh, would be your worst state at 392 deaths per 100,000. New York State is next to last. New Jersey is, in fact, last. The best three states with the lowest death per 100,000 was Vermont, Hawaii, and Maine. Now, if you're looking at straight non-adjusted numbers for South Carolina, they've had 1,272 COVID deaths per 1 million citizens, which is within a few of the number the other, other rankings gave us, which is lower than the national average for the United States. This is without any lockdown. So when you compare us to Massachusetts, which has been massively locked down, theirs is 2,057 per million. So thank you to our governor for keeping us open so that we can continue to keep our jobs. Uh, the numbers are actually half of what Massachusetts are when they've locked down. Now, the media has been calling for not relaxing our restrictions once the numbers keep going down. There's a study that shows that California, after finally removing their stay-at-home order um, on January 25th, that their cases have dropped in half since removing that stay-at-home order. There's actually some theory out there that says that the virus spreads mostly at home, um, that you uh, spread it to people you have close contact with at home, and that staying locked down actually reduces your ability to fight off other viruses and colds, so it reduces your immunity. Um, I think that's kind of self-evident. I know that doctors and teachers seem to get sick less than us because they're usually around it more than we are. Now, in-person index by state of public schools shows South Carolina is in the highest category 80 to 100 percent. So what this says is South Carolina as a state is in the category of between 80 and 100 percent of its public students, public school students are now back in session. Uh, We're in the same highest level category with Texas and Florida, states that have less than 20 percent of their public school students in included California, Oregon and Washington. I think you're seeing a theme of West Coast versus South. Now, Fannie Mae announced during the first month of 2021 that consumers reported significantly more positive view and home selling conditions over the previous month, that component of the Fannie Mae Home Purchase Sentiment Index jumped 16% points on net. Housing Wire said that Zillow has reported their 2021 housing forecast echoes a rapid acceleration of home value appreciation, with numbers anticipated to be even higher than in 2020. According to Zillow's Home Value Index, the company expects seasonally adjusted home values to increase 3.7%, till March 21st, and then 10.5% through December 2021. And lastly, mortgage rates are holding steady at 2.73% average for another week. Well, that ends our show for this week. I hope everybody enjoyed the show and got some good information about earnest money. Again, I thank you for listening to our podcast. Please like us, subscribe to us, and share us. 
Most importantly, when you are on the podcast, particularly if you're on Apple or one of those, if you'll click that button and rate us five stars, because five stars would be the most appropriate rating you could give us. Thanks, y'all. Have a great week.